You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Just bring the honesty and the integrity to the game. Your guide on the side. If we're not wholeheartedly in our relationship, then we probably are always looking for exit strategies. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Many times your spouse, they may seem a little critical, but they also may just be trying to give you uh, some some ideas, some creative criticism, maybe it's anything to get you to try something different, to do something different. And so today I wanted to take a few minutes to talk about how do you take criticism from your spouse? And uh, many would be like, well, I shouldn't have to. Well, you shouldn't have to. But um, uh, it may not, it may be that they simply don't know how to frame it in, a, in any other way other than it sounding critical. Or it might be, honestly, that you are just kind of sensitive to feedback, especially accurate feedback. I know many times uh, I, I just wish people would just not give me feedback. Except deep down, I also know you need the feedback, right? So, um, Remember, uh, I'm going to give you just some rules that I've learned as I uh, work with people, as I get feedback myself, as I'm in my own relationships. Uh, Generally, if you kind of um, recognize one simple rule about feedback or criticism is that all criticism is more of a reflection of the person giving the criticism than it is of you, right? So, um, you know, some people might nitpick certain things, others might nitpick other things. And if you notice the feedback you're getting, many times it's very much customized to what the needs are, the ideas are, what what one person feels is appropriate or not appropriate. So it, it's not something you necessarily need to be offended by. It's not something you necessarily need to take um, any serious offense by. So I guess recognize where the criticism is coming from. Recognize that, you know, if they're if they're critiquing how much money you make, you know, there's probably a history here of of why they're bringing up money. And it might be that they came from money. It might be that they money's really important to them. Um, another Another thing I always believe is check your sources, right? So a lot of times people will criticize you maybe about your your home cleaning skills, how clean the house is, but that may also be the exact same person that never, ever, 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 ever cleans the house. And so it's easy for them to maybe criticize, but they don't help clean the house. Is um, notice the Notice when the conversation and when we're getting the feedback. Uh, if the criticism is coming in in the most angry, volatile, negative, ugly part of the conversation, I wouldn't weigh it so heavily, if that makes sense. Sometimes uh, you don't trust. I had a person once say, you know, uh, you always trust a drunk person because drunk people always tell the truth. And I'm like, you know, kind of, I guess, but they also wet themselves and they also, you know, can't stand up straight. So I don't know how much I would weigh what they're saying when they're drunk. And it might be true to their heart because they're willing to say it when they're intoxicated, but it also doesn't mean it's any more accurate when they're drunk. It's also no more accurate when they're really angry. So if someone's really angry and then they get all critical, I don't know that I would weigh it as more truthful 
what it might be telling you is, boy, when the, the, they are keeping some things back, or it also might be telling you that when they have no filters on, they, uh, they'll they say anything. Um, is your partner sometimes um, – you might notice that you're more critical of your kids when they're doing things that you wish you wouldn't do, right? So when I see my kids biting or picking at their nails, I get mad because I'm like, don't do that because I do that. And I want you to not be like me. Stop doing that. Check your sources. Uh, there there might be reasons why the criticism is coming out. Um, it also might be just their pet peeve, their obsession, they may have been raised that you make your bed and you make it a certain way and it's made the minute the person gets up, it's made. And it's just, you know, that is just your spouse's pet peeve. And if it's their pet peeve, you don't always need to take that as, you know, normal or the law. One thing you could do, too, when somebody's trying to to push a lot of feedback or criticism on you is start looking for the truth in what they're saying. And so if you can find some truth in what they're saying, then what you could do is just take the truth, no matter how small, work on that, and disregard the rest. You know, there is power in being able to show other people that you actually can see truth. So when somebody says, man, you spend a lot of time on your phone, don't immediately deny it. No, I don't. Find out where there's truth. You know what? I really do. I love listening to podcasts. I love whatever, whatever, whatever. Find the truth that, that, that is there and, and see if you can't work with the truth. In healthy relationships, there usually is more truth in criticism than actually criticism. <laughs> it's just somebody that's, that's trying to help give you some information. They also are a lot of times with people that actually care about you and are trying to help you be better. Um, underneath the criticism is actually a deeper pain that they might be having. If my wife is upset with me always being on my phone, it might be really what she wants is more attention from me, more work, more help, more support around the house. The, and, and so if you think about it, if you wanted to give somebody effective critical feedback, it might be smarter to share what you really want instead of just critiquing what you don't like. Sometimes it doesn't do any good to just tell everybody what you don't like to see. I don't like to see you on your phone or why do we always eat the same thing every day? Maybe it might be better to tell what you'd like to see more of. Is there any way I could help and find ways to to find some new recipes? How could I help make a meal with a new recipe this week? That might actually be a better way to do it. So you could actually acknowledge what they're saying, admit what they're, what they're, what's truthful about what they're saying. Accept it. Actually appreciate what they're doing. I totally agree with you. I'm on my phone all the time. I admit that it's I a lot of times defer to my phone to when I'm bored or when I'm when I have downtime and, and I'm sorry it makes you upset. And I'll work on making it better. And then actually make a plan to to do something better. Don't turn, though, as we're doing and getting feedback and critique from others, don't turn over your self-esteem to the other person. They shouldn't have the on and off switch to you feeling like you're worth something. And a lot of this, I think, comes from just our childhood. If, you know, if we if we would be critiqued by a parent and it impacted us as a child and we felt, you know, put down and deeply unloved and uncared for – 
Sometimes just recognize if you're feeling those same feelings today, that doesn't mean you have to take the feedback today like a child, like you would have taken it as a child 25 years ago or 40 years ago. You can actually relook at it today and put it through another filter. Maybe they don't know what they're saying. Maybe they don't understand how this is impacting you. But don't empower anyone to to change your moods consistently. You, in the end, are a, you're an entity. You're an agent. You're a free agent, quite honestly. And um, being a free agent allows you to choose how you're going to feel about the feedback, what you're going to do about the feedback. I found personally when I feel most guilty or hurt by feedback, there is a lot of truth in it. And I'm already really upset with myself, which is why I don't want them highlighting my weakness. I'm already mad and I'm already down that I don't do that. I'm already down that I'm not doing the better job here. I'm already – so thanks for the feedback. Um, but it, but me being down doesn't discount the truth of it either. There's actually – I think we're supposed to feel guilt and guilt is what's designed to get us to make a change and do something different. Don't let the guilt turn into shame where all of a sudden we feel like we're not worth anything. That's just a trick your mind plays on you. To uh, you know, to be able to be angry at someone else sometimes. Oh, that person! I'm so sick of people speaking truth about things I already knew that I'm not doing that I knew I should be doing, but I'm not. <laughs> when you think about it that way, it's kind of crazy, isn't it? It's just feedback, folks, and uh, I get it. I mean, I'm very sensitive to it as well. It's just it doesn't elevate my life being hypersensitive to to feedback, and I don't want to empower too many people to uh you know to have that kind of energy change in me. I don't want them to have those keys to just automatically make me feel incredibly happy or incredibly sad just by how they're responding. I do have a buffer inside of me that can reinterpret how things go. Anyway, interesting stuff, folks. It's a life of feedback. We're all going to get it one way or another and interestingly, the more successful you get, the more powerful you get. The higher you get up on the ladder, the more people are sometimes trying to mix you up a bit, make it a little harder for you, and more people have an opinion about you. It's not always fun, is it? You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. It is interesting. I, I have friends that both speak Spanish or uh, other languages, and they they make it a habit in their family to to use those languages more. And it, they, they actually do it as a way to to bring themselves t- together because they both speak Spanish. So why not speak more Spanish and then keep your language alive? It's something that you can do together. It actually uh, seems to energize their relationships a little bit. And I realize that whatever it is, um, you can make anything a hobby or uh, you know a learning opportunity. My father-in-law learned Spanish just on the side. He was a doctor, a cardiologist, and for fun, he wanted to learn Spanish. So he would have uh, anybody that spoke Spanish in his uh, when he was doing his procedures, he would make them speak Spanish to him. And every day on the drive in, he'd listen to Spanish um, recordings and try to learn how to do it. And now he's fluent in Spanish. Like, come on. He made did it as a hobby. There really are a lot of things that we could probably try to do with our significant other, our loved ones, where we we actually can find more ways to connect, find more ways to be together 
on a hobby, find more ways to be together, whether it's language or whether it's just you know, getting out and uh, enjoying tennis or riding bikes or whatever you like to do together. But um, one of the things I, I hear a lot from my clients are, you know, they fall out of love. It's just not easy to keep the fire alive and the flame burning. And um, I, I, I'm i like, yeah, well, sure, passion, you know, you want passion in your marriage, but passion takes energy and you've got to somehow engage energy in your marriage. If you want more passion and connection, you're going to have to exert more energy. Oh, yeah. See, I don't have time for that. I kind of just want to take a pill that I just uh, gives us passion. But uh, many marriages are, are really starving because we don't exert the energy we need, just like we don't exert the energy that it takes to, to make um, – Something like learning a language takes energy. I, I learned a language and I'm still not focusing on it or, or giving it any energy. And when you don't give something energy, it fades. You start to lose it. And so I would just challenge all of us, if you want to make things important to you, you're going to have to give it some energy. We always talk about just giving it time, and time is great, but it also is going to take energy. You're going to have to decide how you know how bad you want something and is it worth the energy you have to to take in fact uh, my kids were saying the other day hey dad let's buy a boat we want a boat let's get a boat and in my head the whole decision is about energy <laughs> because my kids have never they don't know what it feels like to ski all day and then come off the boat uh, and be done and bring the boat in and then have to spend the next few hours cleaning the boat, you know, and drying the boat and washing the boat and taking care of the boat. They don't know what that's like. But in my head, I'm like, oh, yeah, it's really not even about skiing, you guys. But then others would say, yeah, but that's how you teach your kids to work, right? You teach them to work that. Yeah, but that's just more energy. So um, think about it. What takes your energy and what gives you energy back? And that's probably um, something that we all ought to be looking at. If you want more excitement in life, if you want more connection in marriage and relationships, if you want more um, you know, learning and growing, you're going to have to figure out how to ex- you know, energize uh, yourself enough to go do something about it. Also, maybe you're going to have to cut down on other things that you're doing. At some point, you're going to have to say, I'm not – I can't do that. I don't have – the bandwidth to keep doing all of these other things. But um, it also, there is benefit in um, finding activities where you could like work together as a family and use and conserve all that energy to, for example, be with your family. We play tennis as a family and that makes it so every time we go do our hobby, we're doing it as a family. And that all of a sudden gives us not only time together, but something that we can share together, something that we enjoy together and uh, something that brings us a lot of peace. So life is good, and whatever it is you choose to, you know, you know, excel at or make a hobby or bring into your life, let's do it. That's great. And manage your energy as you do it, and see if you can involve more people into the process. Then all of a sudden, your hobbies become something that are additive to your family life instead of something that divides you away from your family. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, so what is in a name? You know, for new parents, the name means a whole lot of stress. You got to name your kid, right? And will they love their name or hate their name? Will their name, you know, be be held up and and you know motivate them to become something more? Is it the right name? Is there a right name? Is it the right fit? Should you pick your your baby's name? Uh, you know, a gender neutral name so they seem inclusive. There's a lot of uh, thought that goes into naming your baby. And here to talk about the surprising psychology behind naming our babies is uh, one of our contributors we love to have on the show, Dr. Susan Krauss-Whitborn. She is currently a professor of psychological and brain sciences at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, also is a um, a writer for Psychology Today. Uh, Susan Krauss-Whitborn, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you, Matt. It's nice to be back. Great to have you back. This naming of a baby is a big deal. I mean, we always make jokes about it, but I I mean, you don't, ah, this goes on forever. This kid's going to carry this name forever. That's right, unless uh, the kid decides they've <laughs> they've had enough of it and uh, wants to switch, which uh, you know presents its own set of issues. Well, and, and so the fears we have as parents about the naming—I mean, it seems like some people think a lot more about it than others. Absolutely, uh, and for some, it's sort of automatic. It's been decided years ago that this would be the name and somebody's being honored by that name or it's just a favorite name of one of the parents. Um, And uh, hopefully they've given it enough thought so that it's a name that isn't going to make the poor kid's life miserable. (laughs) And you know what, as if everything else isn't going to be hard for the kid anyway, just growing up and being a, you know, a 14 year old boy or girl, um, the last thing you want is a name that'll get you beat up. Yeah, it's surprising, really, when you think about it, just why we place so much value on names. Yeah. Um, But also, parents tend to, whether consciously or not, um, give their child a name, which will then have implications for the way they're regarded in terms of their gender. Um, Because uh, female names and male names, which is what I wrote the uh, blog about, um, actually differ in the way they're pronounced, which then has connotations for gender roles. So you're, you start to gender stereotype your child inadvertently um, by giving them a, a feminine or masculine name. Interesting. Yeah, like a guy named Ashley mm-hmm. or something like that. May, it, 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 no matter what happens, it's still there's still a culture you're dealing with, right? There's still context in which the name is being used that is going to become part of every, you know, every interaction. Yeah, I mean, it'd be nice if everybody used gender-neutral names, right? and then we wouldn't have this, what I would consider somewhat of a problem, um, just because you're kind of already being identified before you even do anything um, as masculine or feminine, and it's just because of the way that we um, associate different sounds with, you know, hard as male, soft as female. Hmm. Why don't we just go with numbers? If everyone just had a number... (laughs) Oh, they do that in prison, I think. Yeah. We'd probably figure out a way to... uh, (laughs) To ruin that. meaning out of that, yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. What are some other issues that uh, parents run into that make this so difficult? Well, uh, aside from gender, which is what I focus the blog about, I mean, there is this um, factor of how unusual the name is and um, kind of what the connotations are. Um, And... 
you know, this is where it becomes such a challenge because you have no idea what this kid is going to be like, and you're trying to find a name that's going to match. Now, if you want to hedge your bets, you give the child a good middle name as well as a good first name, and then the child has an option. Um, I've always been bemused by people who go by their middle name. I just think it's kind of funny. Yeah. Um, what was wrong with their first <laughs> you know, initial? I mean, it sounds kind of distinguished in a way. Um, F. Scott Fitzgerald. You know? Right. Right. Um, B. F. Skinner. That was not. Well, he just went by his two initials, and then everybody called him Fred. So <laughs> it's instead of Burris. Yeah. Was his actual name. So yeah, I mean, you want to really, you know, you come become paralyzed with indecision um, when you're picking a child's name. But um, you want to give it just some thought. How different do you want it to be from those of other children of the same uh, birth cohort? Um, how much do you want to honor somebody with the name? Um, and what are your own associations to that name? Hmm. How does it make you feel? It's It's funny. We named a child, one of our children, um, Britain after uh, – it wasn't after, but we heard the name from a basketball player that was a yeah. local basketball player here. And now it's um, it's weird because we now – we kind of know this player as an adult and our children are all older and it's – but it's almost like our son is now associated with this pl- this person that he never knew. Oh, yeah. And it's, well, it's, it's, it's great. I mean it's it, he's a good person. It's a good association. It's yeah. just – it. It, it's different than when we, you know, we we name we put middle names after our our parents, and th- mm-hmm. that's kind of a neat association too. So there is a way to, to to but to create meaning is really what we're doing, right? This is about meaning making. It is. It really is. And um, it, it it you know again we can become paralyzed by indecision yeah. about this, um, but the more you think about it, really the better it is because you can explore all those associations. Um, like I got a wrong number one time when I was pregnant with my first, my older daughter, and uh, it was a, a, someone named Stacia they were looking for, and hmm. I thought, oh, Stacy, that's a nice name. Yeah. And I don't know, it just popped into my head, and it was so random, but now luckily she likes that name. <laughs> it's stuck. It's stuck with you. It's stuck, and it actually fits her personality you know, perfectly. Um, and it has the added benefit of being gender neutral. Yeah. <laughs> what, what about this? It's so interesting, too, that um, it seems like some parents are thinking about the child when they're doing this, mm-hmm. and some are thinking about themselves. Like, mm-hmm. they're just trying to, they're trying to differentiate themselves. So they might, they, they might want to name their, their child Stacy, but then they've got to decide how they're going to spell it. Yes, and right. is it going to be I E? Is it going to be E Y? Is it just going to be Y? And it's uh, there's there's a difference. It seems like between you know using the name Stacy and saying Stacy versus spelling it and then having mm-hmm. someone say it. It, mm-hmm. it. You know, it seems like you might not want to have a name. I don't know that every single time they call you up, <laughs> they pronounce it wrong, and you have to have a you have to always start every interaction with a correction. Well, you know, not, not necessarily, but potentially. But that actually, that's I, I kind of like that idea. Then that um, it be it sets you apart. An explanation, yeah, um, and it does set you apart. Uh, but then there are parents who want to uh, promote a certain initial. 
Um, and actually, I did like the fact that her, the first initial was an S. <laughs> yeah. In my yeah. name. And then it also makes it easier when you think about handing things down to your Oh, yeah. Or, on the other hand, they take stuff of yours because it starts with the same initial. <laughs> That's right. I, I really like that locket, Mom. It's got an S on it. That's right. Can I take the towels, Mom? You're not going to need them. That's right. Um, That's they right. do have S's on them. Well, it, it's interesting. It, one of the things I, I uh, was fascinated about is this um, this idea that you get get into uh, phonemes. Is that how you pronounce it? Yes. Uh-huh. Talk about that with us. Uh, you've, you've started a bit, but, but get, in, get into the phonemes. Okay, so first you have to practice saying this and that, um, and, or thin. So you put your finger on your Adam's apple, and if you can feel a vibration, it means it's voiced. And if you can't, then it's unvoiced. So um, thin, thin. It's unvoiced. Yeah. I'm sorry, I said it wrong. And this is voiced. This. Okay. So some people in reading that blog said they couldn't tell the difference at all, but, um, <laughs> but but that's one easy way. So then you look at the voiced phonemes, and the names that start with the voiced phoneme <clears throat> are thought of as harder, which then has masculine implications because mm. men are hard, women are soft. Sure. So it turns out that's how names are organized, um, and so by following that rule, you're providing a gender stereotype for your child without thinking about it. So it's not so a gender neutral name is best in a way. Um but apart from that, you might want to think about do you want to conform or do you want to um you know break out against um the gender stereotypes that we we impose on people. Interesting. So if you and that's so subtle, right? So that's just mm-hmm. that's that's almost I guess that's the harshness, the hardness mm-hmm. of how the sound is is made around the name. Yeah, and even if they made up names that weren't actual names but gave them these characteristics, people tend to associate the hard ones with men and the soft ones with women. Give, give me some examples of some voiced names of females. Oh, okay. Um uh-huh. Um, it's a little curveball. <laughs> yes, you did. Um, I think I mentioned... Uh, is Olga. Olga. Olga would be voiced. Yeah, that's voiced. So that's so that's so that, that seems harsher. Uh-huh, it does. Um, and uh, it's funny because the authors of the study were Michael, which is voiced, and Adam, which is voiced, So, and they conform to their own stereotypes. Um, but uh, Timothy, Rachel also doesn't follow that rule. Um, Timothy uh, does not. So, you know, you can look at exceptions all around, but um, the best way to tell is put your finger on your Adam's apple <laughs> and see if it vibrates or not. And if you don't have a good vibrating Adam's apple, find somebody who does. And then if you're really desperate, um, you can just run through a bunch of baby names. I think that's what I did when I was reading the study. Yeah. I just started looking at names of babies and playing around with it, and it was fascinating. Okay, so, so test, test this because I'm not sure how my Adam's apple is performing today. Ben, is Ben, is ben a voice name or a? Unvoiced. Unvoiced. So it's, it's a softer name. Yep. How about Matt. Oh, Matt. Oh, you're so voiced, it's not even funny. <laughs> you're so right, Susan. Yeah. <laughs> isn't that – It's but it's such a subtle little idea, isn't it? And – but the research is showing that this – just the simple voicing of the name – or, I mean, the simple 
uh, kind of, I guess, tone, vibration that comes off tends to categorize it in our minds as as strong or as softer. That's right. That's right. It's interesting. Um, and there's a whole other angle to it as well, which is um, another study has shown an imp- sort of implicit egotism, it's called, that you tend to drift towards occupations and even places to live that uh, are kind of where your name resonates. Oh. So Dennis becomes a dentist. Yeah. Matt becomes a doormat. Oh. I get it. (laughs) No, I get it, Susan. Let's take a break, Susan. We'll come back and make more sense of the naming of our children. Susan Krauss-Whitborn is joining us and... uh, she really, she's, uh, she's a professor, she's, she's uh, an author, she's everywhere. She's authored over 160 refereed articles and book chapters and 16 books. We'll take a break more with Susan Krauss-Whitborn when we come back. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Friends of the Matt Townsend Show. Today we are talking about uh, your children and naming children. Uh, it really is a very stressful moment for parents to figure out what name you are going to hang on your child for their lifetime. And again, they can change their names if they want to, or you know, uh, some just make up their own names. We have a son, this Briton I was talking about, cutest kid in the world, a high schooler, but all of his friends call him Bobo. So it almost didn't even matter that we stressed about what we were going to call him because now he's Bobo. All of the parents know him as Bobo. Someday when he runs for president, it will be President Bobo Townsend. <sighs> Bobo. I was pretty sure that was a clown or a monkey. But um, they may end up choosing their own name in the end. But joining us is uh, Dr. Susan Krauss Whitborn. Susan Krauss uh, Whitborn is currently a professor of psychological and brain sciences at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. She's the author of over 160 refereed articles and uh, uh, and book chapters and 16 books, many in multiple editions and translations. She um, also uh, her most popular or recent popular work is the Search for Fulfillment. That was released in 2010. It's uh, it's great to have you back with us, Susan Krauss Whitborn. Thanks again. Thanks, Matt. Uh, sorry, I interrupted you there earlier. <laughs> no, no, no. You're fine. But, but no, Bozo is the clown. I think. Oh, Bozo oh, is a clown. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Bobo. I don't know who Bobo is. I don't know. It's, it's my cute, son. Though. Yeah. It's cute. It's uh-huh. cute, and it's his. It's his name. You know. And what's cool though is about this. It does become our identity, right? This is. It does. It really does. And it matters. Like they, they say that, you know, when somebody says your name psychologically, it creates a response in you that they know your name, that they're connected to you that way. Um, talk about what else we know when it comes to names and the parents. What does the naming mean about the parent? Well, you're projecting your kind of wishes and hopes and onto your child, uh, maybe a part of your own identity. As I said before, if you're uh, using similar initials or um, yeah, people or your, the same name as yourself. That's what some people do. Yeah. I've, I've been at reception at uh, family gatherings where almost everybody there is called Sue. Mm-hmm. 
and then I'm Sue. So that actually, and I'm not even part of their family. It doesn't so. work. There's too many Sues. <laughs> there's Sue Senior, Sue Junior. There's Aunt Sue. There's the whole yeah. of them. But everybody used that name. So I mean, that's where people project their own identities onto their child quite li- literally. Not that there's anything wrong with it. Right. It's just interesting. It, it, it's always, um, I, I couldn't do it. I named my second, my first son, my second child, we named um, Jacob Matthew after me. But I, I had a hard time wanting to put his name so that we'd, I, I don't know. I didn't want to project me onto him either. I thought that would, that might ruin him. Well, the inserting it in the middle, though, you know, it wasn't, you know. So he can idea. use it, you know, he can drop it if he needs to. That's right. But he probably won't want to. Yeah. Um, I mean, and that's a great thing is about family traditions. Uh, not only does it simplify life <laughs> yeah. a lot um, because you decided, although it may be the name of one parent's parent and not the other. So what do you do about that? Right. And one parent is being continued on and not the other. So that's, then that's why some people will opt for a completely different name or one that may be a slightly reminiscent. Or then there's the last name. We haven't even talked about that. Yeah. And what goes with the last name? So um, I don't think there's any research at all on this, but I am quite fascinated by initials and the initials that your name will huh. form. Yeah. Um, <laughs> my, again, I, I've, I think I've picked a bad uh, – my initials are MT. Yeah. Which, okay. doesn't that just mean empty? Oh, but what's your middle name? M-M-T. Oh, see, that's strong. Mm. <laughs> mm. Uh, you know, it's, it, people with last names that begin with a vowel, um, it, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting because there's so many words, three-letter words you can form that end in a vowel. So I actually think it's just as important for parents to put initials together and see what that does. Hmm. Yeah, um, no, I agree. Uh, I agree because I one of my children uh, is named Sarah, and she goes by Sarah Townsend Davies, and her so her initials are STD. Oh, okay. Yeah, so that went that went totally sideways. <laughs> that was, but again, you don't think that through. She could drop the T. She could, uh-huh. she, and so she only uses it on special occasions. Yeah, but. It's. I guess that's a that's an interesting thing. And there was an article. I don't know if you saw the article that came out that um, they might start. Many people are thinking of hyphenating their name with their wife, so yeah. that so and even the men are going to hyphenate their name, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, and share this anyway. last name. Yeah, um, I mean that people. I thought it, the trend was reversing. Um, there was that trend, then there wasn't that trend. Maybe it's coming back now mm-hmm. uh, with the couple hyphenating their name. And you know, then the question becomes what happens when that person gets married and then you've got 16 names yeah. for yourself. Yeah. For the genealogists in the world, we're really complicating their lives. We might yeah. actually be making them easier. I think easier. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. That's true, huh? Um, but yeah, I mean, that's a... And then, but people can play around with all sorts of options, which is what's kind of nice um, about the way things are now, is that we do seem to be more conscious of the psychological meaning of a name and the symbolic value of taking on your partner's name or not, or or the hyphenating, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, so it, it, that's where um, we're opening up some options, which I think can help people feel better. What, what do you think, um, just I'm sure in all of your studies you've seen something 
these the couples that divorce and uh, the mother. I, I've always found it really almost noble that uh, a mother that that has divorced her husband but still has her children, and those the children carry the husband's name, and the mother keeps that name. Mm-hmm. And there's talk just about it psychologically because this name it makes us it, it almost is a membership to our group right it's a it's an identifier it's a label and it seems like you know it's good for children to have to to be able to feel proud of their name their first and their last name and have it mm-hmm. it's it's part of their identity yeah it is and i mean that is I, but it's hard to take change a child's last name, though, too, after yeah. in that example. Right. Um, so, it, I mean, it, it probably reflects, though, some feelings of friendship that parents have towards each other, even though they're not together anymore. Yeah, respect, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, which is ultimately probably good for the child. I'm, you know, I'm going to not take your name away. Right. We're going to keep that because there still is that bond. Yeah. It's a it's an interesting thing because we you wouldn't think names would play such a big deal, but they obviously do because we're so stressed when we have to name someone. Yep, that's right. That's right. It's a good sign, isn't it? Yep. <laughs> I mean, I mean, and then there's some that just say, "Hey, you're you're pumpkin bread," and we make up some name. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. A lot of the stars lately have just been naming wow. their kids, you know, Apple or whatever. Blue Ivy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. I that I well. I mean, it, that's probably the least of their issues that their kids are going to be dealing with. That's true, yeah, and notoriety and the fame. and Yes, it makes it very tough. Oh, wow. Well, Susan, we appreciate you. Keep up the great work. Thanks, Keep man. writing on Psychology Today as well. Will do. Great talking to we'll you. We'll have you always. back. Thank you. Yep. Take right, care. Uh, Dr. Susan Krauss Whitborn. again, uh, you can find more information at uh, Psychology Today and many of her many articles there. Uh, Just a wonderful resource to all of us. We appreciate her. We're going to take a break, come back, wrap up this second hour of the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be doing a little Coach's Corner in just a few minutes. Stick with us, doing what we can to help you live longer, love stronger, lead healthier, happier lives. We'll be right back. Coach would have put me in fourth quarter. We'd have been state champions. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Play ball! Welcome back, folks. Hey, uh, earlier we were talking about how simply the tone that of how your name um, is, is pronounced, like uh, the phonemes they were calling it, how it comes off the tongue may come off with a, a harshness of tone, or maybe a softness of tone, which which then sends a signal to another person, the listener, that you've got a masculine name, or maybe a more a softer name, like Ben. So, you know, it's it's just tone, and it's something we don't always pay attention to, but in my world of working with couples and communication and people, tone is telling, right? Tone matters. And so I wanted to spend a little time in the coach's corner talking about our tone. And um, it's it really is, I think, a really powerful indicator of, of what somebody is actually feeling, of their emotion. Emotion is best managed and understood probably through somebody's 
uh, tone, more through their tone than their words. So pay attention to the tone, right? Tone, remember, is communication. When somebody says, and you can tell they're down, they're depressed, they're in the sitting on the couch, their arms are folded, they look sad, and you say, are you okay? And they're like, fine. Do you hear the tone? That means they're okay, right? <laughs> yeah, Ben. They're fine. Yeah, because sometimes, like, Kaylee yeah. and I will talk like that and she'll say that. But she's really sad. That's but why she I, says she's okay, so I assume she's okay. Yeah, because she said, I'm okay. But her tone was like, yeah, I'm fine. Could you hear that? It's I subtle. hear, I'm fine. Okay, how about this? Yeah, I'm fine. Do you hear that? She's almost singing. Okay. Yeah, some people some people are tone deaf. Some people can't hear it. And I appreciate Ben being honest with us today. Because tone, it's, it's communication, right? Tone tells the deeper story. Tone is our friend, not our foe. When somebody, oh, don't you give me that tone. Rapping. Yeah, Ben, just sit this one out because that, you might be missing the point. Uh, it's not, but, you know, tone. Some people just don't hear it. But tone does communicate uh, distress and levels of stress. So here are some keys. I'm going to give you five keys to recognizing and and either taming your tone when you need to tame it down or recognizing another person's tone. Okay, Five basic keys. Pay attention to them. Ben, take notes because you are going to need to take notes on this one. Okay. Okay. You, you, ben, don't take notes. Don't take notes. Yes, sir. Just listen with your mouth shut. Just listen. Number one, tone is um, tone is not personal. Okay. Tone is not. It's not. They're not trying to beat you up. It's not a personal thing. Tone is just a vibration that's coming from the emotion. It's the it's the real issue. So here are the tools. First, you got to read the signs of distress. Read the tones. If you hear volume getting louder, if you hear the pitch getting higher, or if you notice the pace of the conversation going faster, you got to see those signs. When you see those signs, it's telling you, pay attention to this one. <laughs> this one's a little more erratic. If they're saying things, but they're not saying, but their emotion is showing energy, but they're not communicating using words that show they're mad. For example, just listen to how often we can change the same sentence. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. Same sentence, four different meanings. I didn't say that. Okay, so it wasn't you. You did not say that. I didn't say that. You really didn't say what I'm accusing you of saying. I didn't say that. Okay, you didn't speak it. Oh, you wrote it? Okay, you wrote it down on the board. Is that what you did? You didn't say it. You wrote it. I didn't say that. Okay, so you did write it. You just didn't write what I'm saying you wrote. And the only way we can make sense of those same four words, I didn't say that, is by changing our tone and our inflection, right? So we're using this all of the time. 
But if you hear the volume getting louder, that should tell you something. If you've noticed the pitch is getting higher, that should tell you something. If you notice it's speeding up, pay attention to it. Then be careful and soften your heart. You cannot not communicate, right? So if I react to your negative tone and I get into my negative tone, then your tone is going to bounce off of me and I'm just going to attack you. Instead, I need to absorb what you're bringing on, your tone. And I don't need to absorb it so I'm destroyed and I can't feel anything. I absorb it so I can better understand you. I want you to share with me so I can better understand you. So I have to soften my heart and allow you to allow this information into me. And instead of just taking the negative interpretation and going with it, I need to, I need to not just run with it. I need to get myself centered, focus on what I'm trying to do with you. I'm trying to be an influence. I'm trying to help you. And if you can, alter the mood or alter the mode with how I'm going to handle this and how I'm going to adjust the mood. So if I, if I can and they're mad at me and I can see I'm not mad, I'm just tired. Okay, I'm sorry. And I might even at times give them some space. But if I come back in the room five minutes later and they seem happier, then I'm going to point out you seem happier. Sometimes it's better to just quit talking and maybe find a different mode of communicating, like a letter, a text. And then change what you can in the conversation and realize there are certain things you can't change. But I don't have to get louder because you are. I don't have to get you know, higher screaming because you are. I don't have to run because you do. Just change the tone, the tempo, the timing. Basic stuff. But hard, isn't it? We'll take a break. Be back next hour. More fun. Stick with us. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Tell me that's not a pretty amazing dynamic. Your guide on the side. Just bring the honesty and the integrity to the game. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. On BYU Radio. BYU Radio. You know, they say that uh, one of the biggest problems uh, that humans have is the fact that we have expectations, right? If you expect certain things, you, you're going to go looking for those things. And um, so today I wanted to spend a little bit of time seeing if we can't help each other to manage our expectations a little bit more. Now, um, when people come in and see me, a lot of times they, they, there's this gap, I call it, uh, the gap of pain where somebody wants one thing. And they keep getting another thing. And the gap between what they want and what they get, that gap, if it's a big gap, causes big pain. If it's a little gap, causes little pain. But we always have a choice when we have um, either lower expect- or uh, you know mismanaged expectations or our expectations are too high of the people around us. We have two choices usually, and, and one choice is to, to pick up our game, we, and which is what most of us try to do is get the other person to just pick up their game, to do more, to get closer to the expectation that I have. Another choice is that we actually could just lower our expectation to what is actually being delivered, right? And, and just, you know, just accept what the person around you is giving you instead of keeping your goal of trying to get them to pick up their game, let's just accept that they they can only do it this way. And, um, you know, that actually ticks a lot of people off as I talk to them because I'm like, why don't we just, why don't we just, you know, like here's an example. Um, 
let's say a husband used to have a great job and um, as he would work and make money for the family, let's say he was making $100,000 and uh, he, he, he really did a great job, made $100,000 and then all of a sudden lost that job. And the expectation is that he should go out and be able to make $100,000. So I had a client once whose husband wasn't making a hundred grand. He was making about $30,000 after he was making $100,000. And um, for 15 to 16, 17 years, all he was making was thirty dollars to $40,000. And the spouse was very upset about it because he really could do so much more. He really, he really could. And uh, she kept trying every way she could to get him to go out and get a better job and do a, you know finish his resume and finish that one last class so he could get a degree and then make his hundred grand and and she finally came in um, and saw me and and basically said what am I supposed to do he just he just he's too lazy he won't go be the hundred thousand dollar guy that I thought he was and I asked well is is it possible that he really isn't a $100,000 earner. Is it possible that what he really is is a thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 earner? Is that possible? And she's like, well, no, he made $100,000. And I'm like, how much, how many, how long did he make $100,000? And she said, well, two years. Well, and, and how long has he made $35,000? And she's like, well, 15 or 16, 17 years. And I'm like, well, it sounds like to me that really he's just more of a $35,000 man, isn't he? If we're just going by the data. Well, you want me to say that? Yeah, I mean, but he has the ability. We know he does. And I'm like, well, I mean, we've, we've, we saw a moment of it. Maybe he was just really lucky those years. You know, maybe he just got into the perfect job and it was just, no, he could do better. And I'm like, but in the end, just so you notice, it's it's not about what he's earning. There's a reason you're frustrated that he's not earning more, right? Well, yeah, because now it means that I have to earn more and I have to – and I don't want all the pressure and now I have to make all the bills work. And I'm like, so why don't you just accept that he's a $40,000 man and and figure out what we can do to make it easier for you to make money, which is in your ability to control it or your your ability to manage the bills better – Anyway, she went back, talked to her husband, and apologized to him. And she said, I'm so sorry that I'd kept expecting you to earn more and more money. And the reality is, is it's I'm just frustrated because I'm not able to be the kind of person I want to be, and it has stress on me, and I'm sorry. I just need to accept that you're a $35,000 a year income and, and start figuring out ways so that we can start living that way. And then he's like, hold it. What do you mean I can't earn hundred thousand. She's like, well, no, I mean, the data just shows you can't earn it. And of course I can earn it. Weirdest thing in the world. Within two years, the man's now making 80 grand. And what changed it? It's simply, she started to change, realizing instead of getting her joy and her happiness from someone else making some change, and then instead of just instead of just hoping for something that wasn't ever going to change, she just accepted what was happening, actually accepted the gift she was getting, which was thirty five grand and it changed something it changed something in her and changed something in him. She actually started being appreciative of what she had, and he actually started giving more change. It happens when we look at our expectations, so instead of trying to expect the entire world to change for you. What if you could just get to a point where you 
accepted what you could do and and just put it back in your circle of influence and managed your expectations. I, I promise just that simple change of what you can do, focusing on what you can influence and being appreciative of what you do have, just those few little changes will go a very long way to creating a healthier, happier life. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. We've got to learn to recharge. And really what we might need to learn to do is turn stuff off. We lack the discipline, I truly believe, to to maybe live in this tech culture. Um, we, you know, Everyone keeps spouting the idea that, uh, yeah, you have the control. Not really. Not really. We, you've got to have the character, the ability to actually go turn this stuff off and start leading your life to a completely different level. Um, the, the, the validation of this is coming out of Tokyo. Um, listen to this. A young journalist's grueling work schedule, including a single month working 159 hours of overtime and just two days off the entire month, apparently triggered heart failure that killed her at the age of 31 according to Japanese labor regulators. Authorities officially attributed Miwa Sato's death to karoshi, the Japanese word for a death due to overwork, according to information released this week. And, uh, and she, by the way, worked for a public broadcaster. So that's kind of scary um, if, you're, if you're a public broadcasting employee. Sato, a political reporter, had been covering elections for Tokyo's government and the national parliament in the months leading up to her death in 2013. She died three days after the election for Japan's upper house. The determination that Sato's death was caused by overworking has brought renewed scrutiny to the work culture in Japan, where hundreds if not thousands of people are believed to be working themselves to death every year. One official with the public broadcaster told reporters her death was indicative of a problem of our organization as a whole, including the labor system and how elections are covered. The country classified 189 deaths from overwork in 2015. 93 suicides and 96 heart attacks, strokes, and other illnesses related to overwork. The woman, by the way, 31 years old. 31 years old. In addition to long hours, vacation days routinely go unused. On average, employees used less than half of their leave time in 2015, about nine days a year. Are you out there taking all of your leave time? Are you taking your vacation time? Or are you saving it? Oh, I'm just saving it, Matt, for a rainy day. Like when I have my bypass surgery, I want to have a lot of vacation days to take. Well, maybe if we all would go take our vacation and actually make it a vacation, maybe what would happen is you wouldn't need the bypass. Hmm? Maybe. I mean, I don't want to be a jerk about it, but there is a point where – we got to learn, folks, and we've got to learn how to live a life and how to have a life. Um, it's not going to just happen for you. And you may be noticing in your life that you keep thinking that someday, just someday down the road, you're going to finally be caught up on your bills, be happy again. You'll, I mean, once, once you do this next thing, you know, once you get the next promotion, you're finally going to be happy. And what we may be realizing is there's no such thing. Happiness isn't around the corner, right? Happiness uh, is is there now. In fact, the book The Happiness Advantage that our last guest uh, was basing some of her work on is telling us that happiness is not something that we eventually reach. It's something we've got to find now. And when you can find happiness today in your life, that is what actually produces the results. It's not that getting results makes you happy. 
It's being happy that helps you make results and get results in your life. So we've got to re we've got to re um, reevaluate and re kind of organize our priorities about these things. It, it's not going away, folks. And the game has changed quite a bit. And I don't. It's not even. I'm, you don't need to be anti technology. You do need to be pro living your life, taking your life back. Otherwise, you will just naturally go to whatever system is set up. And in Japan, the way they're working each other with this assumption about what good work is, 105 hours of overtime a month, it's too much. It's too much. And it's I guaranteed, uh, according to the researchers, it's not actually producing better work on your part. You are not a better employee by giving 105 hours of overtime. You're just not. You're not producing better work. I'll, I would put you head-to-head with anybody that is sitting there working an effective, uh, you know, 50 hours a week maybe, 40 hours a week. And um, I, think, I think they can – they'll outperform you. It, you can't burn the candle – at both ends without it uh, eventually burning out. Just a little insight from your coach, your guide on the side. That's why we do the program to help give you the tools you need to live longer, love stronger, lead healthier lives. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Mobile devices have made our lives incredibly convenient, haven't they? With a single click, you can find out where your kids are, order groceries, or check next week's weather. But with that convenience comes the danger of losing a sense of reality, and that danger is extended to children. So how do you make wise decisions on how your children should use these digital devices? Here to help us sort through these issues is pediatrician Dr. Jenny Radeski. She's an assistant professor of pediatrics at the University of Michigan. She earned her MD from Harvard Medical School and is uh, the author of the new American Academy of Pediatrics policy statement, for Media and the Young Minds. Dr. Rodesky, thank you so much for being with us today. Hi, good morning. Thanks so much for having me. Kids love phones, and they are, they're really good at a lot of these digital devices. In fact, in many ways, they're much better than their parents. Mm-hmm. So, but the parents, we need to step up and make sure we're leading out on these devices, right? Instead of just letting the kids lead and let them do what their friends say they should be doing. Mm. And I think that... Digital products and digital devices are designed to be really engaging and habit-forming. Um, you know, there are textbooks actually written about how to create the best video game, the best digital product that will keep us clicking. And so it makes sense that when adults like us have difficulties breaking the habit of always checking Facebook or another uh, social media or something else on our device, you can imagine how mm. a little immature brain that doesn't have the same attention controls or impulse control that we do and has more immature reward centers in their brain that are just starting to mature, that that might be even more uh, habit-forming for kids. And I don't use the word addiction because I don't think that this, um, for little kids, it's more you can, you can create healthy media habits and you can also break the more kind of compulsive ones that, that tend to develop when kids start to prefer digital play over lots of their other play. I mean, it know? really, it, it's, 
habit or not, it it's it makes sense because these things are so entertaining and the and the brain mm-hmm. and they're actually they're creative and you can use it. I know a lot of what you teach too is how the proper use of media. Talk to us about what I mean. What ages should we start in introducing technology? A lot of parents, you know, historically have joked about we just hand them the iPad to keep them busy and quiet during a meeting or whatever. Oh, sure. How, how do what, – what are some of the overall guidelines we need to pay attention to as parents? Well, you know, our new American Academy of Pediatrics guidelines changed a little bit. We shifted things a little bit younger, recognizing that lots of families are using Skype or FaceTime or video chat uh, with their infants and their toddlers and young kids to keep in touch with um, deployed parents or with grandparents, that's great. There's, there should be no limits on how we use media um, like video chatting to connect with each other or to look at pictures together um, on a phone, you know. But um, the handover, the I want you to be quiet or I, I want you to stop that fussing, um, that is so easy and it works so well and we really don't know yet whether that has a, a negative or positive impact on kids in the long term. If, if they start to expect that that is the way that they calm down or that is the way they start to control um, their, um, their behavior. Mm. So we're, we, we recommend a couple things. Number one is if you want to introduce technology early, don't feel pressure. You know, the devices and apps and um, tablets are, are created so intuitively that, that my two-year-old, as soon as he started fiddling with it, he figured it out, you know. Um, mm-hmm. so, so they'll figure it out, and especially now that schools are really introducing a lot of technology starting in kindergarten, don't be worried that your kid won't keep up. Um, I interviewed a lot of parents, um, ranging from lower-income um, urban families to, to suburban families whose parents work for tech companies. Um, I just published it in the Annals of Family Medicine, and what we heard was, we had all these tech company parents being like, oh, I keep this under wraps. Like, I don't want my kid to get out of control with this. Whereas the lower income families kept saying, I want my kid to keep up. I want my kid to be right. competitive in the new economy. I, I'm going to just give them their own device when they turn one because it's got to be good, right? It's marketed as educational. Um, so we really wanted to send the message, don't feel pressure. But if you want to introduce early, starting around like 18 to 24 months, use media with your kids. Sit them on your lap and play that game together on the device or watch a show together because that's how they'll actually learn Mm. from it. Otherwise, their brains are so immature that they're really going to be using it kind of as a sex toy, Mm. as a, a, you know, hit this, listen for sound effects. I guess it's like a book, right? I mean, you don't just hand your one-year-old or 18-month-old a book, you would sit them on your lap and work with them and talk to them and go through the book. And and research has shown that that's how children who are um, under about two and a half, between one and a half and two and a half, children um, really start to understand symbolic thinking. They start to understand that a two-dimensional image represents something in their three-dimensional world around them. So they, but they usually need a parent to help them make that transfer from hmm. 2D to 3D. They need a parent to say, oh, look, that's a duck. We just saw a duck at the pond yesterday. What noise does a duck make? And all those different contextual explanations about meaning actually help a child learn from a two-dimensional media source. So, so we really want the message to be to parents, 
don't think that just because the app says it's educational on the iTunes store, it, there, there's most of those apps have not been tested, and most of them are really basic. The most educational thing is going to be using that just the way you would use a book. Sit down, get some new ideas about how to talk to your kid and play with your kid together with the technology. Yeah, it's, so one of the keys, I guess, is it's not replacing you, you as a parent. It's, again, supplementing learning. Sure. And, and also, I'm a realist. And I am a parent of a three-year-old and a seven-year-old. <laughs> and I started writing these guidelines when I was a parent of a two-year-old. So I understand the benefit of handing them that tablet so that I can have an actual adult conversation. Um, and so I, I really don't want parents to feel judged that, um, that we're now taking away this very effective behavioral management tool. We just want parents to be really cognizant and intentional about how they're using technology, you know, if they want to bring a tablet out to a restaurant to keep their kid um, happy and, and seated, then then just know that, that it is, um, you know, as the child gets older, they may need to work a little extra hard to help that child learn how to do those things on their own, mm. you know, just to tolerate the boredom of sitting in a restaurant or, yeah. or, or entertaining themselves with, with crayons or a book. Um, when- and... Where do they? Where do you get the insight as to what tools are the best? What sites are the best? What do you recommend? You know, a new mom do. Um, I have a daughter. We have a grandchild. This grandchild loves grabbing your phone, loves pushing the button, mm-hmm. and that's pretty much all she feels good about doing right now. <laughs> right. And then throws it. Um, but where should my daughter go to find the best? programs, the best learning tools? Well, we, um, in our new American Academy of Pediatrics statement, we specifically suggest that parents go to commonsensemedia.com, which is a nonprofit website that uh, evaluates different apps, different books, different games, um, different movies, and it really gives a great age rating for when that uh, digital product or media product is good for kids. And it also gives an idea of whether it's quality, whether it has been designed, you know, with any input from a, um, someone who understands the way kids think and learn, or whether it's just another kind of repetitive um, cause and effect toy. Mm. Um, the other thing that we recommend is is just the the tried and true uh, educational programming from Sesame Workshop, from uh, PBS, Public Broadcasting Service, um, PBS Kids has a great website for different, um, not only the, the TV shows. I don't want parents to think that TV shows are less educational than apps because actually TV shows, they tell a nice linear story that young minds can really follow and understand, whereas apps are kind of broken up little chunks of knowledge with like little distracting bells and whistles at mm-hmm. the same time. So, you know, parents can look at those websites, you know, see what things might fit their child's uh, uh, stage of development. Um, I always recommend that parents use an app with their child, watch a show with their child, see if they like it, see if they like the way the child acts afterwards. You know, mm-hmm. there, there's definitely shows that I, I have my sons watch Mr. Rogers Neighborhood, which is still on Amazon Prime wow. yeah. because they're so calm afterwards <laughs> and they say such nice things to right. each other afterwards. Um, whereas, you know, after a, uh, a show that's about ninjas, you know, sometimes they fight afterwards. <laughs> they go all ninja on yeah. each other. 
It's so true. And sit down, spend some time um, going through that. And I guess when you think about it, I mean, you're you're making these decisions, you know, kind of collectively in your role with um, the American Pediatrician Pediatric uh, Association. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Um, so th- th- these aren't you're not just throwing these out there. This is really the depth of of, of setting a great opportunity and a foundation for our kids to learn from. Yeah, we really wanted this to be based on as much research evidence as possible because we know that digital media and kids is such an emotional topic for people. You know, it really triggers people to feel judged or people are either anxious about all these new technologies that are feel like they're coming out every month. Um, and on the other hand, many people are, are the early adopters who love filling their houses with technology and they feel very judged by people who say, tell them to limit it. Um, so, so in order to not seem like we were coming from one camp or the other, a pro-media or an anti-media, we really just wanted to look at the evidence. Um, and the evidence shows, you know, that as young as 18 months, if parents are working and together using media together with kids, kids can start to learn some basic concepts. Um, but it's the, the most important thing is that it's not displacing sleep it's not displacing physical activity. It's not displacing family routines like meals where we sit and we connect emotionally and have conversations. And that kids get some time to play in ways that their brain takes the lead, not the app takes the lead. Mm. You know, because that um, kind of unstructured play, going outside and figuring out how to build a fort, is the sort of, uh, those are the sorts of play activities that help predict a child being persistent a child having some flexible problem solving about having a longer attention span, the stuff that really matters for succeeding in school. You know, so as pediatricians, that's what we care about. We want kids to be happy and healthy and and successful. And we're just trying to give some suggestions for how media can be used in families to not displace all that other good stuff. I know in your article, um, how should we teach our kids to use digital media? You brought up the fact that we maybe need to have an unplugged time or a time where we turn off all the devices. Um, How have you seen that used? I think uh, so far people seem to like it because it's a very concrete, doable thing. Um, it is. Uh, it, it sometimes is easier to count the unplugged times and spaces in your house rather than counting up the screen time. Yeah. Um, because now that mobile devices can be taken anywhere and used instantly, it's much harder to count how many minutes we're actually using them. So by creating, you know, no um, a rule about no devices at the dinner table, or say there's a playroom or a bedroom that's just going to be device free because. Every time the child's in there, you want them to be focused on their play, you want them to be calming down to sleep, or you want the parent to be focused on the child, not distracted by what they have to do on their device. So um, I think that that has been met with a lot of positivity from parents and providers on, on how to create these intentional, you know, uh, unplugged zones and spaces. Sometimes when I'm talking to um, children in clinic, who are, who are using technology kind of throughout the day, we'll make a deal that they'll try to create just one new unplugged space. Like, hmm. for example, um, one patient I have, we decided on car rides because I wanted him to get some practice just staring out the window and looking at clouds or being bored. 
or having a conversation with his mom because their relationship was getting kind of strained. And so, and he found that to be doable because I wasn't asking him to, to cut it all out. I just wanted him to start to create some new normal around not always being plugged in. Yeah. And, and he was able to do that. He did. And he was proud to tell me the next time, you know, that he was counting um, punch buggies <laughs> uh, and like that he would compete with his mom. And it was just a nice new dynamic in, in their relationship. That's neat. Do you um, do you notice I just talked to a pediatrician the other day and we ended up talking about how we we're seeing more and more anxiousness uh, in children, more and more um, attention deficit disorder, maybe or hyperactivity disorder. Do you do you sense that is that real? Are are we seeing more cases of anxiety, ADHD, and and is is any of this technology use creating other impacts on our families? So, as I'm a developmental behavioral pediatrician, so I see lots of kids with ADHD and autism and behavioral issues um, and learning issues. So I do know that the rates of a lot of these early developmental and behavioral issues are increasing. Part of that might be that we're better at identifying it. We have our radars out for for kids who are showing early signs of these developmental difficulties. Um, uh, There probably is a bit of a true increase also, but but it's so multifactorial, right? We have a lot of child poverty, and that is a huge predictor of child ADHD or trauma symptoms or anxiety. Um, We have a lot of parents who themselves have mental health problems or who are struggling to get the care for their own issues. Um, so, so uh, of course, those are the bigger issues that are harder to solve mm. in our society um, that, that are probably linked to a rise in child difficulties. I don't think, that, you know, personally, I don't believe that media is, is like causing ADHD or right, causing right. autism. I think that there are probably kids who, you know, we know that kids who have ADHD, you know, right from infancy, we can see that they're these little movers. They're constantly on the move. They have a shorter attention span. They have really intense emotions. They're harder to parent. And so, you know, one of my hypotheses is that we tend to hand those kids devices more Mm -hmm. to keep them quiet, to try and teach them new skills or to try and entertain them. And then that um, in some cases, starts to displace the play or the parent-child conversations or activities that are really important for for those children developing attention skills or impulse control skills or creative thinking skills. So um, we need more research to look at those kids over time. And, and, and you, you even brought that up, that the benefits of you know, raising our children healthy and strong, even with technology, is persistence, attention span you know, the fact that they can accomplish something and make something happen. I mean, this is, there's some great benefits to life if we just, you know, help people develop. It's, Mm -hmm. it's these children need to develop through the stages of development in a healthy way. And uh, that's always going to demand more attention and time. Yeah, it's, it's hard work. um, And it's, um, it's much easier, of course, to, to use digital tools to try and meet some of those needs. So, you know, what I often recommend to, to parents is that if your child is, is now used to getting handed their, their tablet when they're being too active or being too loud or they're in distress and they're upset, then, you know, don't just hand them some random YouTube video. Hand them 
the video that shows Elmo belly breathing to mm. learn to calm down when they have a monster inside them. Or hand them the Daniel Tiger app that's about feelings so they can use the media as a tool you know, together with the, with the parent would be ideal to say, how are you feeling right now? What can you do about it? Because that, that idea of identifying and regulating your emotions is, again, a huge predictor of school success and relationship success, you know, that we don't explode every time we get frustrated. So, um, you know, it would be great if parents can use some of these, you know, social emotional learning apps to try and to introduce an idea to their child, but they shouldn't rely only on that because what helps the most is, is looking at your parent or your caregiver and having them look back at you and say, oh, you're really frustrated right now. Hmm. You know, what are you working yeah. on? Let me help you with this. And, and that's how kids build that emotional awareness of like, oh, mom says I'm feeling frustrated. I must feel frustrated inside. What can I do about this? Let me follow mom's advice. So um, that's, that's really what I don't want the mobile device to displace. And and that, um, boy, that is, that's just emotional intelligence, right? That's right. managing, recognizing your own emotions, managing your emotions, recognizing the emotions of others. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I guess we we tend to think of you know it's it's the new devices that are causing all of today's ills. And um, what do you? What other hopes do you see? I mean, I've also heard therapeutically they're able to use some of the some technology to even, you know, enhance people's uh, disabilities and and other benefits. So we don't need to demonize the media or the technology, right? Right. It's a tool. I mean, it's like a hammer. You can build something with it, or you can hit someone in the head with it, you know, yeah. that it's, it's how you use it, right? And every time a new tool is introduced into society, it makes us uncomfortable because it feels like, oh, this is new. And many people feel like they're controlled by the technology rather than they controlling how they use the technology. Mm. So if we are constantly feeling controlled by all of our notifications and our uh, email load and our... Um, you know, these new, um, these new norms of being constantly available to our coworkers or to our social media friends, then maybe we need to shift the balance a little bit and say, well, you know, I'm, I'm in control here. I'm going to decide when I'm checking this. I'm going to decide what notifications I get. I might even, you know, I even know people who take email off of their um, cell phones. Hmm off of their smartphones because they know that email is, especially work email is going to suck them in. Yeah. And they want to contain work email to specific times of day when they have to actually open up their laptop and check it. So that's, that's, you know, you can, you can craft your device and turn off notifications all you want to try and uh, create a, create a do not disturb sign for the hours of five to 8 PM. If that's the hours that you're with your kids after work, or there's even apps like there's an app called moment for iPhones and an app called um, Quality Time for Android. And those let you track the amount of time that you're spending on your phone um, as a parent and then even create little times um, of day when you don't want to be disturbed or you don't you want to be reminded not to use your device. Um, so, so back to your question of, you know, the technology isn't the source of all society's ills, but technology definitely interacts with our ills <laughs> to mm-hmm. either potentiate them or help them. 
And I think when we start to control how we're designing technology and using it, we can start to address some of the ills rather than potentiate them. Yeah. That's powerful. Um, just a, a general guideline. I know really uh, quickly you, you had mentioned about one hour for for children, um, young children. Is is it still one hour of media time for, you know, teenagers? You know, the the we did two separate policy statements because we felt like media rules should actually be kind of different between sure. the zero to five-year-olds and the school age and teens. So I, I was not an author on the school age and teen report, but I, I know I was very involved in all their conversations to not have um, an, a certain time limit. Um, they did review the evidence on um, health risks of excessive media use, and they found that when you're worried about obesity, you should probably keep um, media use, entertainment media use, to about an hour to an hour and a half a day. Um, that's what the new research shows. So, um, but they didn't want to apply that recommendation to all kids because every kid is different. So I do think if, if parents are worried about obesity, they should talk with their, their families or their doctor about how to try and limit it, you know, to the, that time where you're just sitting and, and doing something fun to just an hour. Um, for all other kids, the message is really do everything else you need to do to be healthy and then the leftover time is yours to do whatever you want to do with it, whether it's screen-based or not. So get your, if you're a teenager, get your eight to 10 hours of sleep per night. You know, get your homework time in. Don't multitask because mm. that's just going to make you worse at everything you're right. going to do. Um, and then, you know, don't have your devices around when you're trying to have conversations because that's going to make your, your social relationship suffer. So true. And that, that there's just the whole etiquette side to this as well. Oh, yeah. Man, great stuff. Dr. Jenny Radeski, thank you so much for your insight. Keep up your great work there at the University of Michigan. And uh, everybody, again, we'll be posting all of the links uh, that she mentioned um, on our Twitter page, at Dr. Macho. Powerful stuff, folks. Again, it's a tool. But you're the hand, right, that will move the tool. Teach your kids. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back talking unique Thanksgivings with Caitlin Thomas. Stick with us. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. In the studio with us today, Dr. Brian Willoughby is joining us, an assistant professor in the School of Family Life at Brigham Young University. He's also the director of the Relate Institute, a nonprofit organization dedicated to studying and improving romantic relationships. If you go to the website relateinstitute.com, you can take assessments and then figure out you take them, your spouse takes them. You can also do them with singles, and it'll teach you what to do to kind of get ready to be a better partner. Or to be a better partner. Exactly. Love Everything it. you need. Love it. So today, though, Brian, you wanted uh, you brought up this idea of talking about butting out, the, like losing the word "but." We That's use right. we use "but" a lot. Like I love you, but you drive me crazy. Exactly. Yeah. It's, Not good. It's it's one of those communication words, right? O- oftentimes, single words don't have that much power, but right. the word "but" does. Yeah. Major, particularly when we're in conflict, when we're when we're trying to talk about things. Because when it comes down to it, when when we hear the word but, yeah. we immediately assume that whatever you said before that doesn't matter. Dismiss it. Ignore it. That's right. You don't – yeah, you're a jerk. But yeah. I like you. Right. Exactly. And the Hold problem on. is yeah. in a relationship, 
is we oftentimes when we're when we're talking about something that we're struggling with or we're apologizing, the the good thing that we say happens before the but. Right. And then we say the but. Yeah. And then it dismisses all the good things that we said. And we even there's people that teach that technique. You know, it's a it's a sandwich. Say something positive, mm-hmm. then say what you gotta say, the negative thing, and then say something positive again. Right. But but if you add the word but, so you're great, but you're not, but you're great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this, this is one of those cases where what might work really well in the workplace, yeah. in negotiations, and, mm-hmm. and all those things about no. being a good, powerful leader right. don't translate very well in at a home. mutual relationship at home. Yeah. <laughs> Darn it. So the, the funny thing is because but is language, when you hear a but, your brain naturally thinks kind of disregard or hold the first thing said in a position, but really believe what I'm about right. to tell you. Yeah, it's 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 about communicating to someone that well, I, I've I have two things to say, and the second thing is more important. And like I said, unfortunately, that's oftentimes the criticism to our partner, yeah. or the thing that they did wrong, or the thing that I don't like that they've done. And so the apology or the positive thing that I said beforehand is 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 being devalued. It's so subtle, really. So what do you replace a but with? So we talked about at the Relay Institute in our blog post, we talked about a period, just end just the sentence, end right? Now, the problem with that is that as soon as we do that, we get anxious and mm-hmm. vulnerable. Because again, yeah, because we I usually gave, have said something yeah. like, I apologize, I did this wrong. And then we want, we really, really, really <laughs> want to yeah. justify that and explain why we did it wrong and why it was partially your fault. And so having the courage to simply end the sentence there. Yeah. And allow that apology or allow that communication, allow that emotion to sit with our partner is hard. What do you say to people that – I have a lot of people that talk about – it's kind of one-sided in the apologizing field in their marriage. That only one party apologizes very easily Mm -hmm. and maybe – so one does – one always apologizes quickly and maybe one never apologizes. Right. Then that might be something – if I'm feeling that. That is something we need to talk about and communicate about. And I can use these same strategies and I can bring it up and say, you know, I feel like I'm always the one that apologizes. Mm. Stop. Right. Right. And now I've said, here's how I feel. Yeah. It's a feeling statement. So I'm not accusing you. I'm accusing you. I'm saying you never apologize. Yeah. Right. I feel like I'm always the one that apologizes in this relationship and I'm struggling with that. It's making me feel sad. It's, you know, what, what can we do about this? There you go. And then wait. Right. And then I wait because now we need to have a conversation. Now, if I have a relationship where I'm doing those things and my partner is now always attacking or not reciprocating, mm-hmm. well, then there might be something deeper yeah. going on. And if I guess part of this is if I, th- there's almost a spirit where if you went home and just learned, okay, we're going to just start using more periods. Mm-hmm. No more buts. I'm just going to – I learned this. Dr. Willoughby taught me this. I'm going to use this um, to kind of know it's coming ahead of time. Do you – how do you suggest you you prepare somebody for what you're about to tell them? Yeah. So this this is a great general conversation about being proactive in a relationship, right? Is that it's one thing to know something like this. Like I'm not going to use a but statement and and so I'm going to work on that. It's oftentimes more productive to bring this up 
outside of conflict, right? Yeah. So we're not fighting. Yeah, yeah. Say, hey, I learned this thing. I heard this thing on the radio. I really want us to try this because I notice we do this a lot. Let's put each other on alert about butt statements yeah. in a relationship. And so part of now what we're doing is you can almost make it a game. Yeah. Is uh, when we're talking about, like, oh, yeah. oh, you said a butt. That's right. right? Yeah. And, and now it's something that we're being proactive together in a relationship. And we know that's very powerful. When we have people in a relationship that are being proactive, they're saying this relationship means enough to us that we're going to work on it. Mm. Even if we're fine, even if there's nothing going on, we're not in conflict, we're not in therapy, we just want to get better. Yeah. As a couple, here's something we can do. That's really cool. So this is just – it's it's kind of just planning ahead. It's preparing. It's communicating. Right. And then making it into a game. I, I guess we shouldn't have a scoreboard. Right. Yep. You don't. You don't put it on the whiteboard. Of, right. We don't call a foul. First person to ten gets to oh. sleep on the couch. No. It's... <laughs> Look who just said butt again. Yep. Loser. All right. Let's take a break. We'll come back more with Dr. Brian Willoughby uh, and the Relate Institute. Again, go to the website relateinstitute.com, where you can take their assessments, their their downloads, and just learn and learn and learn. It never ends to uh, what you can do to improve a relationship if you'd work on it. Stick with us. We'll be right back. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. Simone, this is your dream. You have to follow it. I know you're right, but... But what? Everyone I know has a big butt. It's the butt. You can't just throw the the butt in there. your big butt. I love you, but the minute you hear that word, you think, no, you don't. I love you, but not so much. Joining us is Dr. Brian Willoughby. It's that big B-U-T. Yep. Right in the middle of the sentence. <sighs> if communication is about understanding, then – and it's not necessarily about the behavior changing. It's about understanding it. Right. Then I also could manage my expectation of you. Right. So if you've told me 500 times you're sorry and you apologize and even show emotion Mm -hmm. and you still don't change, then I could start to manage my expectations. That's right. Yeah, And as soon as we start to use our communication to get you to do something Mm -hmm. instead of understand you, now we have a form of negative communication that we call controlling communication, which is bad. Manipulative, yeah. Ooh, ugly. Yes. Ugly. But uh, along with every apology or an I'm sorry, the opposite side – has a phrase they can use. That's right. I forgive you. Yeah. Right? And we talked about that earlier too, is is when I have a partner that apologizes or is being vulnerable, I can't jump and seize that and say, great. Mm-hmm. I get to now tell you yeah. that you're absolutely right and you've done all these things wrong. And part of, of apolo- or part of forgiving someone is to truly move past that point. Yeah. We see all the time in relationships where there'll be conflict around whether it's money or intimacy, whatever it is. And one person will apologize, and then another person now gets to use that as a power card right. in the relationship. Well, at least I didn't do this, or at least I didn't do that, or at least I have my head on straight when it comes to this topic. <laughs> right. right? Truly forgiving them is saying, you've been vulnerable. I accept your apology. We're moving forward on neutral ground. Yeah. Is Does actually saying the words do something to us psychologically, emotionally, chemically? Like yeah. saying I'm sorry, does it make me more sorry? And saying I'm, I forgive you – does it make me actually forgive you? I think if we're doing it in the way we're talking about, 
you know, so it's not a I'm sorry, but yeah, here's but you're a you did, Let's just get this over with. And I just want to get it over with. If it's coming from a sincere place, I think there are there is power in that in those words. Yeah. And there's power in I forgive you. And I think there's something when two people are doing that that bonds them not just with their words, but emotionally. Mm-hmm. There's an emotional connection that we can feel in that kind of conversation that I think transcends the actual words. And it seems like it actually gives you power to do something. So sometimes when someone's hurt you, you almost feel powerless. Right. And But being able to say, I forgive you, says I have the power to do something yeah. here. I'm going to forgive you. And it fosters something deep down beyond just the commitment that we know is so vital. I'm convinced this is the most fundamental part of any long-term marriage or relationship which is commitment. Mm-hmm. When we're with someone that's that's willing to apologize or with someone that's willing to forgive us, we automatically feel more invested in that person. Like, wow, that person has my back. Yeah, That person is in this thing and is willing to fight for it. I, I, I want to put more energy now into this relationship. I want to put more effort. I'm committed to this. And we uh, know that that is so vital to any healthy relationship. Because, yeah, that now we're safe. Okay, perfect. There we go. Okay. Problem solved. Dr. Brian Willoughby, we'll take a break, come back. Stick with us. 